Hi, I'm Natalia. I'm Gen Z. I'm Molly, a millennial. This is Arnisha, Generation X. And I'm Micah, the boomer. And, and we, we are Dame, Dame Talk. Talk. Four women, four generations, four unique points of view. Hi, listeners. It is Dame Arnisha. Uh, I am so happy to introduce the last entrepreneur in our series. She is my dear friend, Ann Beal. Um, Ann is a doctor by trade, and Ann and I met through a mutual friend. So she and I were at several functions together, uh, and she always stood out to me as the smartest person in the room, or at least one of the smartest people in, in, in the room. But what I always really liked about Ann is that she was always very approachable, she was always very kind, very open-minded, very helpful. You know, all of the things sometimes you don't expect from a doctor is what is what um, you got from Anne. And the other thing that always resonated with me is just how much, how much she adored her daughters. Um, she would always talk about them. Oftentimes, one of them, the youngest one, would be at the function with her. So I, I, that, those things just always stuck out to me um, about Anne. And I mentioned that she's a doctor by trade, but over a year or so ago, Anne actually decided to launch uh, a skincare line. And she did it because her daughters um, were having skincare issues, and she was as well, and they, they just couldn't find anything that worked for them. So she launched Absolute Joy. It is a clean beauty skincare line for women of color. And I got to tell you, I use it daily. I love it. Um, and excitingly, last month, she was one of the recipients of Glossier's grant initiative for Black-owned beauty businesses. So dames, I am so happy to introduce my friend, Anne, and have her share her experiences with our audience. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Anisha. It's good to be here. <laughs> we are so happy to have you. Let's just start with you explaining to us why you even decided to launch Absolute Joy. So there's the there's the 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 story for PR and then there's the real story. So I'm gonna tell you both of them, okay? Okay. So um, so the the story for PR actually it is a true story is I was living in Paris at the time and I was having a lot of problems with my skin and so I was making products at home for myself and for my daughters and um, a friend said, oh, you know, your skin looks really great. And I was telling her that I was making stuff at home. And so she said, well, there's a store called the Aromazone where you could go, it's over near the Sorbonne, and you can go and get DIY skincare ingredients to make stuff for yourself. So I said, all right, let me go check it out. And so I walked into the store and it was filled with black and brown women in the middle of Paris, in the middle of the skincare capital of the world, all of these women were mixing and matching and making products at home. So for me, I said, there's a there, there, there's something going on that all of these women feel a need. And it's not just me and my um, family, my daughters, but it, there's a, a broader issue. And so that led me to start to do a little bit of investigating to kind of figure out what some of the issues were and why particularly women of color were not having their skincare needs met. And so there's market research which shows that over 80% of uh, women of color say that the products that are currently available really don't work for them. And a big part of that I think is one because of the whole emphasis on anti-aging. So we've all heard black don't crack, um, but black does get hyperpigmentation and does get marks. And so while you know age gets us all, I think for women of color, we have issues with skin tone first and wrinkles second. While with white women, I think they have issues with wrinkles first and skin tone second. And so all of the products that are out there that are really focused on anti-wrinkles are not really addressing our needs. 
Um, but the other big thing, which we don't really think about because it goes beneath the surface, is the fact that we are much more likely to have sensitive skin. So I know as a physician that we have more issues with asthma and allergies, and there's something called the atopic triad, where it's asthma, allergies, and, and um, atopic dermatitis, and so or eczema. And so um, when I looked at the market research, I found that about 65% of black women report having sensitive skin as compared to, say, 30% of white women. So a lot of the products that are out there, if they have perfumes, if they have dyes, if they have all these different ingredients, are making our skin react. And it is probably part of the reason why I saw this in France, because in France, they use so many perfumes in their products that probably everybody there was really having this strong reaction in a way that I might not have observed here in, in the U.S. So those two big things, the, the wrinkles and then the, um, the focus on just you know, sensitive skin. And then when I started to really look into clean beauty as an option, I knew as a physician that I wanted this to be high quality and I wanted it to be clean beauty. But then I read a study that found that over 75% of products marketed to black women contain parabens and other toxic ingredients as compared to 60% of the products that are marketed to white women. Now, to be clear, even the 60% is a bad number, but there is this disparity. And I know from some of the public health literature that Black and Latin women have paraben levels that are four to eight times higher than white women. And then these are ingredients that actually concentrate in estrogen-sensitive tumors. And I know, again, as a physician, that we have more issues with uterine fibroids. We have more issues with aggressive forms of breast cancer. We have more issues with endometriosis. And these are all estrogen-related illnesses that um, I think we need to really start to think about what is it that we put into our bodies, on our bodies, around our bodies. And so really wanted to build this as a um, non-toxic brand, but also as part of a non-toxic lifestyle. Okay, that's, I love that. <laughs> I know, me too, <laughs> me too. So, but you didn't ask me what was the behind the scenes story, so the real story though. <laughs> What's the real deal? <laughs> the real deal is I was at a point in my career, so, you know, as Nisha said, I'm, I'm overly educated. I have worked in a lot of different settings, public settings, private settings. And basically my entire career has really been focused on how do I improve health and health outcomes for women of color. And um, the fact is, is that um, every place where I've worked, they will say things in terms of platitudes about what they want to do, but they're not really about it. They're really not about it. And I found no difference between working in the private sector versus the public sector. And so basically decided I need to do this on my own and I need to create something that is really genuine in what it's trying to achieve and is really focused on the needs, particularly of women of color. And then I think we've all seen this where like, you know, you're in these highest level C-suite places and you meet these quote unquote leaders and you're like, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> so, you know what? <laughs> they can do it. I can do it. I am as smart, if not smarter. I'm more genuine. I'm more strategic. Absolutely. I work harder. I show up. Like if they could do it, I can do it. So it really kind of, you know, took away. Once I saw the opportunity, it took away all the kind of voices in your head that you're like, can I? Should I? What happens? What if? I was like, look, if those idiots can do it, I know I can. <laughs> I, I don't know. That. I think I like both. Those are both great stories, but I really appreciate <laughs> the behind the scenes <laughs> as well. 
But I'm watching you guys. You're like, yep, yep, been there. Yeah, exactly. Yep, been there. Totally. Totally. Exactly. Um, we've all been in rooms where we've looked at the leaders and we're looking at them like, how did they get there? And exactly. once you get into the room and once you're at the table, you all, you've worked your entire career working up the ladder, working up the ladder, working up the ladder. And then you get into the room and you sit at the table and you're looking like, I've been working really hard to get here. And I'm surrounded by people who really aren't necessarily the cream of the crop. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And that is, uh, that, that is, is def definitely an eye opener. You know, and it's a little, it's a little disappointing too. You know, you expect it. So in my career, Career, I've been um, in a lot of different places and one of the patterns that I've noticed is that no matter what women have to prove that they can do the job while men have to prove that they can't yeah. do the job and they They're take them, they let them have a long time to prove that Whoa. they can't too right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I mean you can really get away with and you know there, there's a couple places where I've been where I was like you are profoundly committed to mediocrity <laughs> and that is just not what I'm about Right. And like, you know, it's this internal, it's, it's this internal battle, but yeah, no. Yeah. So, and before I, I have a question for you, but before I, I ask you the questions, I just have to tell the listeners, I've seen your skin and it is magnificent. It is just Thank beautiful. you. So I want to that. I'm going to add on to that, Micah. I use her products. Okay. Day, and I just love them. They are not, and you know, I'm a, I'm a beauty. I'm a skincare person, yeah, you know, yeah. and I really, really love Ann's products. I order them whenever I run out. I just order more, you know, they're right. really good products. Well, right. Ann, she, I'm a, she has her own special code. That's how much she orders. <laughs> oh, like, okay. Well, listen, right. I'm about to order me some after this, after we, after this podcast, because I want your skin. That's all I have to say. But anyway, uh, just a question for you about the name. Absolute joy. I mean, I love that name, but can you give us a little background around what made you choose that particular name for your brand? So, so, okay. Everything that is going for um, women of color usually has the word, I don't want to say this word. It has, it's talking about queens or crowns or Shea or Coco's or whatever. Nah, I didn't want that. I really wanted this to be a luxury brand and oftentimes with luxury brands, if you think about it, they're words that literally have no meaning on their own. And so what you have to do is put the word out there and then the way that you market the word, it takes on its own meaning. So I was looking for a word that was essentially neutral that I could layer on top of it what the brand was about. I also knew that I wanted it to be something that worked in English, French, and Spanish, because again, the concept for the brand started when I was living in Paris, and people don't think of like Paris having a large black community or London having a large black community. We might think about New York, but the fact is, is that black women are everywhere. We're multilingual, we're global, we travel. And so we've all heard of urban marketing, but what I'm about is urbane marketing. And the fact that we are sophisticated and in all of these, you know, central areas. So I was kind of trying to play on something with my daughters and their names and the first names and some initial. And I was just going back and forth and back and forth. And I couldn't think of anything. And then I said, but you know what? My daughters bring me joy. They absolutely bring me joy. And so then I decided to spell it J-O-I because joie de vie is spelled J-O-I-E. And in English, obviously, it's J-O-Y. So I was like, it's equally like misspelled in those two <laughs> languages. 
Um, and then I couldn't think of anything to kind of bring in the Spanish. So I just said, okay, let's just deal with like French and English and we'll take it from there. Um, and then literally we were registering it. And then my husband, as he's like sitting at the um, computer, he says, why not absolute joy? And he's like, that's what the kids are, right? I said, I love it. I love it. And so it was literally as we were typing it in, my husband said, I, I actually like absolute joy. And so that's how, that's how we came up with the name. Perfect. Thank you. It's great. He's I over love here it. smiling at me. He's at the <laughs> other end of the room. You're giving him his credit. That's why. <laughs> great. So I would love to learn about your transition from being, you know, in C-suite at a pharmaceutical company to becoming an entrepreneur. And I mean, what was that like? What are some of the biggest adjustments, adjustments you've had to make um, or kind of just how is that experience different? So, um, it's, so it's a couple of things. So first I think, so being an entrepreneur is hard and it is not sexy. So anybody who's kind of looking at whatever is your entrepreneurial leader that's out there, they busted their ass. And so let's be clear about this. But for me, I knew that I've always wanted to make something and I've always had these ideas like across all the years of my life. I've always had these ideas of, Hey, there's a problem here. Hey, there's a, uh, this there, hey, you know, I noticed that such and such is a need, we should create fill in the blank. Um, but honestly, as uh, a mom, and I have three daughters, and I'm the primary wage earner in my family, so I had to be responsible from a financial perspective and couldn't kind of go out and do this on my own. And I actually once read that the three ways to start a business is like one, as a side hustle, two, quit your job, okay, or three, do it within the context of where you're working and then create something new where you're working. So I was always innovating within the context of where I was working, um, but never had the opportunity to you know, really go out and, and do this on my own. Then my two older daughters kind of flew the coop and went off to college. So I got them through college. I have the youngest who's still here. Um, but you know, I was starting to really definitely like smell the air of being an empty nester on the horizon. Um, and so when I was still working for corporate, um, basically decided to just save up enough money that I could live for two years without a salary. And so okay. really worked to do that and then worked to set up myself so that I could invest in my own company. Now, to be clear, that is a profound luxury that is available to like, you know, C-suite folks, but to others, um, I know a lot of people who are doing their business as a side hustle. So they have their regular job. And then they're doing their business as a side hustle until the side hustle um, takes over. There's also, you need to be prepared to invest in your company. And so I knew that that was going to be very important to have the capital to be able to invest. So I needed to save up that money in order um, to do that. And we could talk a lot about different types of businesses, which now in retrospect, if I, if I had wanted to start a business to start a business, I would have done something different, but this is a consumer product. So you need to, I need to do the research and development. I need to create inventory. There's a lot that I need to put into place as compared to say, if I was an accountant or a teacher or an advisor, mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways that you can start your business that doesn't require a lot of capital input. So, um, so there was that. And then what really helped me working in the business world was thinking about a business. So people are like, you know, if you have 
a cheesecake recipe that's your grandmother's cheesecake and you want to start to market it and you're like, but this is my grandmother's cheesecake. No, no, no. What are your cost of goods? How much is it going to cost? Like, you know, are mm-hmm. you insured? Like you have to get, and so you really have to think like a business person. And in many ways, the idea is almost secondary to being able to think like a business mm-hmm. person. And so that really helped me because I've worked in farmers. So I've seen how dirty they can be in terms of how they go after each other. So I knew my stuff had to be trademarked. I knew that I needed to have the um, intellectual property for all of my stuff. I needed to make sure that my name was trademarked, that um, my brand's name is trademarked, all of that. Because if I get very successful, someone's going to come after me and they're going to, or they're going to try to replicate what I'm doing. Um, and so all, being in business showed me how businesses run and it's completely, you know, it feels like the mafia is like, it's not personal, it's business, but that's really, it's really true. And, and, so, and so, you know, people are suing you, not because they hate you, but they're like, you are a competitor and we will do what we can to bring down our competitors. So it just kind of took the emotion out of it and allowed me to really think like a business person and really, you know, focus on my, my numbers and focus on um, what was important. And I think particularly a lot of founders, um, I'm a physician, so I really know my products well. And that's like maybe 10% of the business. The rest of it is Mm -hmm. like the marketing, the distribution, the operations, like, you know, all of that other stuff that um, as a physician, I obviously know nothing about. So I had to kind of move outside of my comfort zone and really think like a business person. So, um, so I often, and even now I talk to women who will come and ask me for advice. I'm like, I actually don't care about the product. What is the problem that you're solving? And mm-hmm. until you can articulate that, you're not going to have a business. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say you could be a, a counselor for other businesses now, but while you were building your business, did you have an advisory team or people that helped you plan all this out? So, so I... If you breathe in my universe, I tapped into you. I was like talking to everybody I ever knew to help me. (laughs) And you'd be surprised at how many people you know when you really start to think about it. So, um, and you'd be surprised also where help comes from. So actually a woman had come to me because she just got her PhD. She was a consultant and she wanted to close down her consulting practice and come into pharma. And so we were talking about it and I actually advised her. I said, well, now that you're a PhD, I think you should just hold on to your business and double your fees um, because there's not a lot of stability within pharma in, in this industry. And you will definitely like, not have control. Um, and in the course of that conversation, I mentioned, I said, like, I'm even thinking about starting my own business, a skincare line. I mentioned it as just like an off the cuff comment. She reaches out to me like six months later out of the blue says, I just want to show you something. She shows me her skincare line and is like, and I've been coached by this woman, Melody Bachelman, who has helped me with my skincare line. And she was like, I think you should reach out to her and see what she's doing. So that was like a completely like you would never expect some conversation. But again, what I've learned is you put it out there in the universe and people actually really want to help you. Um, Arnisha has a long history within the industry. I think she was maybe like the second person I called after my husband. <laughs> and, and like, you don't even know like what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So um, I tapped into Arnisha a lot. Um, one evening I was talking to one of my neighbors. We were out in the, in the courtyard having wine. 
And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to find a manufacturer. I want a European manufacturer. But these French folks are like not really down with this. And she said, well, you know, I have a guy that I used to work with. And then he left to go to Sweden to take over his father's factory. Maybe, maybe he can work with you. And that's who ended up being my manufacturer. So I was talking to my neighbor. So wow. like, you literally never know where um, the help is going to come from. And I literally have never reached out to someone who said no. If you're like, can I have 15 minutes of your time? People always, always say yes. And I think, I think that's important to do. So you used your formal and informal networks, it sounds like, and it all just kind of came together. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it continues to come together. I mean, and as I said, put it out there. I, I have become a real believer in the power of the spoken word. And what you put out there absolutely does come back. Absolutely. Mm. Perfect. Yeah, that's incredible hearing that network just kind of coming out of the woodwork where you wouldn't even expect it. But I, I agree with you with putting it out that you just put it out there. If you're very focused on your goals and objectives, people will reach, will come back and help you any way they can. Mm -hmm. One of the strange ones, I was just like, I really need to know someone who's very senior in this industry. And I don't know this industry at all. I said, let me ask a friend of mine who's, he's a senior executive in pharma, but maybe he knows someone. So he was like, actually, every summer for the last 10 years, I've rented a house in the south of France from this guy who actually is a L'Oreal executive. He just retired. Um, maybe you should talk to him. And this L'Oreal executive is now one of my advisors and an investor in the business. And again, it was because I went to a friend of mine who I was like, who do you know, like in the skincare industry? And he's like, well, I happen to, and again, like it's the guy, whatever, who's ever house he found on Airbnb, but it's like his landlord. Yeah. <laughs> he's a L'Oreal executive. And that's how, that's how it came. Wow. Incredible. It really is. And see, to me, that's like when you know it's meant to, meant to be. When those things just start falling into place, yep. you know, to me, that's a sign that it's meant to be. That's, That's exactly what I'm hoping. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we would be remiss if we didn't ask about, you know, where you are and what your process is that you're taking um, on how you're financing uh, your business. You've mentioned that, you know, you already, you know, you know, you, you wanted to invest some of your own funds into, into the company to get it started, but curious how else you're, you're approaching that. A lot of people think about, um, you know, how do I get money for, my business. And before you even start that, there's some homework that you have to do to get your financial house in order. And so, um, and so as I was saying, you know, get rid of that debt, make sure that you have a lifestyle that is well below your means, put some money away, and then um, be prepared to like, like not live that glamorous life. This is not when you're starting a business, that's not the time to like, develop a couture habit that is not the time <laughs> so um so that's the first thing i would say um with a lot of businesses people look to um you have to invest your own money and people look to see if they're if you have skin in the game and so you can't ask people to invest if you haven't invested yourself so you have to be willing um to put some money in and so, um, so you need to have saved up that money in order to um, make it happen. And ironically, a lot of the stuff, even for us, that was the initial investment was legal, was um, my, lo uh, my logo, 
was um, the incorporation papers, all of that sort of stuff. And people aren't really that interested in investing in that. It's not sexy. Um, it's early stage, but that stuff is money. And so you have to be willing to go there. So then once you're like past that early stage, I actually, when I realized that um, I had products, but I needed to have more marketing money, I was very um, hesitant to take on any debt. And so I called a friend of mine who he has raised money for businesses before and he went to business school. You know, I, I went to medical school. He went to B school. So I called him up and I was like, DJ, what's up? I don't like debt. I don't like owing money. And so what do you think? And the long and short of it was in 20 minutes, he broke it down to me and said, so first of all, the big boys never start companies with their own money. They always start with somebody else's money. Secondly, you want people who um, understand that there is risk associated with your investment and they will evaluate you and give you feedback because that feedback not only helps you become more investable, but it makes you say, I didn't think about that. And then here's a way to de-risk my business. And here's something else that I should think about and you know something else um, that I should do. And then lastly, one of the things that he said is I was like, I don't like, I don't like debt. And he said, but the fact is when you have debt, the bank is your partner and you are quite clear how much money you need to get rid of that partner. While when you bring on investors, some of them come in, they may want to change your stuff. The exit strategy is not so clear. They might cost more money because instead of say, I don't know, a six or 10% return, they're looking for a two and three times return on the investment. So he was like, with investors, just be careful because when you get into bed with them, it can be a real challenge. And it's not always clear how to extricate yourself from that relationship. While with a bank, it is very clean, very easy. And the worst case scenario is then you owe that money and then you just come up with a payment plan. And so having him like kind of lay that out for me, I was like, wow, okay. I never, I never thought about it like that because I had just spent all this time getting rid of my student debt and all the other debts. So I didn't want to like <laughs> take on debt for my business. And he was like, no, do debt, do debt. It, it, it absolutely works. And one of the things, and I'll say this going back to my financial advisor, she had us um, refinance the house and pull out money for my house. And I said, no way am I using money for my house um, for the business? And so fast forward 18 months later, when I was like, okay, I need money for my business. One, she had already taken the money out. So she said, okay, just let it sit in the bank. You could always put it back when you need it. But then I realized she was able to get me three and a half percent interest on that money as compared to most of the business loans that were out there, which were like, you know, 15%. So I realized, well, if I was going to borrow money anyway, I might as well borrow it on the cheap and frankly borrow it from myself. And since I had pulled it out um, from our mortgage, I was already paying it off anyway because it was embedded into right. our note. Now, I still haven't used that money. And that's, I'll be honest, psychological for me because I'm just not, that's just me. I don't like to use, the, the thought of using my house or a portion of my house for the business just is, is scary for me. But the fact is, is that financially, um, my financial advisor set it up for me that I really shouldn't uh, be afraid of it. I really should not. And so, you know, I have to 
that's that's my own issue around money and debt. But um, if somewhere to come to me and say, oh yeah, I have that money, and it's literally just sitting in the bank waiting for me to use it, I'd be like, just go and use the money and and you know make you know make it happen. And if tomorrow I got say a major order from I don't know Sephora, and I had to put in fifty thousand dollars in order to order inventory in order to send it to Sephora, yes, that's what I would use that money for. Okay. Yeah. So when you were talking to your B school buddy, um. Did they say anything about when they talk to men versus women and their reaction around debt or their reaction around starting their own businesses? Did did they acknowledge any differences there? So so not not DJ, but one of the things, and I'm involved with this group of women um, investors here in the Washington D.C. area, and I actually went to one of the sessions that they talked about, and it was incredibly interesting. One of the women she said that they've done some studies to look at when women pitch to investors versus when men pitch to investors. And so when women pitch to investors, we get asked questions like, how will you protect your business? How will you make sure you don't fail? How will you um, make sure that you, the, the questions are all couched in terms of failure and you're protecting against failure? Hmm. As compared to the questions that are posed to men are, what is the market opportunity? And do you think you're going to have a 5x return, 10x return, 100x return? And how will you attack this market? And, and so it, all the questions are couched in terms of success. Wow. And, so, um, and so my husband and I were just talking about this because one of the things that she said is a lot of women, when they have gone to pitch to investors, have brought a man into the room with them so that even if the woman is in charge, so that it helps with some of these questions from the investors to really couch it and shape it in um, more positive terms. And I know a woman who she runs a tech firm and she's the CEO, her husband is the COO. And she's like, oh yeah, I use him all the time. She's like, I put him forward when it's clear to me that these people don't wanna hear from a woman, even mm -hmm. though I'm the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I said to my husband, I said, be, you may be prepared to have to um, play that role as like, you know, as, and he's like, I'm not a beard, but I'm like, you, you just may have to be in, in those settings where, um, where you're either talking to people who don't know the industry or may not necessarily have invested in a lot of women, much less women of color. Wow. Yes, that is infuriating. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that yeah. because- mm -hmm. It's something we know intuitively, almost, but you've kind of confirmed that it's 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 a struggle for women in, in so many different areas. Um, but I'm glad there's. Unfortunately, it's a man's solution, but it's a solution of some sort. It's but one, it, but but also women are banding together and investing in one another. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's that is great. That is, we're seeing more and more of that. Yeah. And I have a, a couple more questions I wanted to ask. Um, sure. You mentioned earlier, you said if Sephora contacted you, you'd have the money to, to, to prepare for that order. Mm -hmm. What does success look like for you for Absolute Joy? What would make you go, I made it? So, um, so I know that, you know, one's supposed to say, uh, you built the company to X number of sales and I'm in, you know, these countries and I have this kind of distribution and blah, 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 blah. But one of the things that made me say, I'm going to build this company is I saw a um, leadership meeting 
of a global beauty company. I won't say the name, but it's in Asia. And um, they had all like the top 10 leaders of this company and they were all men. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, ain't that a damn shame? Like, in, you know, in an industry where clearly they are making money off of our backs, off mm-hmm. of women, you don't have a company and an organization and a structure where women lead. And so my vision for the company is to create a high-performing organization that is inclusive, so it's not just women only, but it is a place where women can come and can work and can be heard and can take on leadership, as well as we can have an impact on um, the industry. And what I mean by that is one day I was walking through the airport with one of my colleagues who used to work in the beauty industry. And I said, oh, we have some time. I want to go buy some some um, lipstick. And he said, oh, let's go. I've wanted to do your makeup for, for years. And so he turns to me, he says, what is it that you don't like about your face? And I was like, see, that's the first problem. Right. right. That might have exactly. worked like in my 20s. But yeah. now I'm in my 50s. And the question that you need to ask is, what is it that I love about my face? What is it that I want to feature and show off? And how can makeup help to demonstrate to the world the features that I love about myself? Right. And for me, yeah. that was that that was the realization that if men are in power, then they're not well positioned to be able to help lift us up or to understand what is the language that is needed to not only sell to us, but to sell to us in a way that lifts us up as compared to tearing us down. And so I want to, even if it's just in the smallest way, change that dialogue. I want people to use makeup and skincare to shine through, not to hide. And I think that historically this industry has um, has really preyed on our insecurities and and just the other day, I was looking at pictures of my younger self, and I was like, you were so damn cute. and didn't <laughs> even know it. Aww. Didn't even know, because I was young and insecure and had literally no idea how cute I was, because I was filled yeah. with so much insecurity. And I would, I would love like younger women to just not have to go with that. And I think, honestly, that the industry... Um, plays a role in that in, in these sort of ridiculous forms of um, standards of beauty. I mean, that's why all the, all of the models for my company are not professionals. These are friends of mine. Oh, and they're gorgeous. Beautiful. And they're gorgeous. Beautiful. Yes. But everybody's yeah. got a day job. Everybody's got a day job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just kind of wanted to piggyback on to what you just said. Like, as a woman of, like, in the younger generation, at least, I am, like, such a huge makeup enthusiast. Like, I do not care if I go out, like, literally just to the grocery store in, like, a cat eye and a crazy, like, sunset, like, creased eyeshadow or something like that. (laughs) So, I don't know. Just, like, hearing the thought of, like, using makeup as something to, like, cover up insecurities is such an old belief. But at the same time, it's such a, like, a common misconception Um, But I think with, like, the increase of, like, people showcasing their talent in makeup, um, like, on social media and stuff like that, it's more, like, becoming and said, oh, I don't really like this thing about my face. I'm going to change it. 
Mm-hmm. It's more like, oh, I might not like this part, but I love my eyes. I'm going to like enhance that instead. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you're really like using, you know, non-professional models to showcase like something that real people will be using every single day. Like, I don't know. It just like, it gives me hope for like what my generation and like generations to come will see as like what beauty standards really should look like instead of what like we think they should look like you know yeah yeah I think you make an excellent point and actually I read someplace that the women who have the highest level of confidence are not the women who use makeup every day or the women who never use makeup it's the women who make a choice yeah how to use makeup and it's the women who someday say I'll do it and someday say that I don't but it's because they're in control and they're making a choice about mm-hmm. how they want to um, present themselves to the world. I mean, I see that in my daughters. They are, they're like, some days I'll use makeup and some days I won't. And for them, it's definitely a choice that they choose to, to exercise. And I think that's, that's fabulous. Yeah. So one last question for you, Anne. You know, mm-hmm. we're a generational show. So do you have mm-hmm. any encouraging words for women and for boomers, for Generation Xers, millennials and Gen Zs, if they're thinking about becoming entrepreneurs, anything you want to tell that might, I don't know, it might be the same or it might be different based on the generation. So anything you want to share? So for, so let me start with my generation. I'm 57 and I was just like, why are you getting into the beauty business at this age? But the fact is, is that, um, I think they've done the studies to show that people over 50 are more likely to have successful businesses that they yes, start. Yes, they did. Yep. And, um, and then also the fact is, is that I am at a different stage in my life. My kids are launched. Um, I have one child left to go. And, but, you know, I'm pretty much, I don't have to take care of anybody other than me. So even from a financial perspective, I can afford to take more risks than I was able to do when I was younger and really in the throes of um, raising my children. The other thing is like, you know, there was a part of me that's like, oh, you're kind of old and like, you know, where are you gonna be like five years from now? And I, I once heard one of my mentors say, well, like five years is gonna happen anyway. So you might as well do it. And like, you know, five years from now have a company. <laughs> and then be right. five years older <laughs> rather than just be five years older and not have a company and I'm fortunate in that I have a good partner who there's some days where I'm like I'm not sure this is a lot of work and money and this that and the other and he and he has said to me so many times he's like the worst that could happen is it will fail but at least you will have no regrets that's right and Aww. so so that you know gives that that gives me courage for younger folks what I would say is to um, leverage your youth. And what I mean by that is you have no responsibility. So you, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have the kids, you don't have all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, get your financial house in order. And then, um, and then if you need to, heck, if you even need to move back home, you can do it because you are actually more financially free as a younger person, which is my way of saying broke. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. not wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> then, then you will ever be. And then for women who are older, and I'm thinking particularly like in your 30s and 40s, the, the thing is, is that you are um, 
in the throes of your career and then you know if you're partnered or if you have kids that is a full-time full-time um job and there are some people who are really able to do it i personally was not i've always wanted to be an entrepreneur but in my 30s and 40s i couldn't really do it because i just did not have the bandwidth but the one thing that i will say is that there's a lot of opportunity because we spend money on our kids in ways that we never spend money on ourselves so just keep your eyes open and if you see that there's something there that is an unmet need think about is there a potential business that's there and the only other thing that i would say for people particularly in their 30s and 40s is one of the things that i found when i hit 50 is that all of a sudden a lot of my friends were getting laid off and I was just like, okay, you know, it happened to one person, then another, then another. And I was like, oh, no, there's a trend here. And so when you're younger, like you hear about, you know, sexism and racism, and then sometimes they'll say ageism, and you're like, yeah, whatever, and you just kind of poo-poo it. I think it's real, and I think it's particularly real for Black women. And so even for myself as a physician, when, you know, I'm, I was 30 by the time I finished all my training, and I was thinking, okay, I will have a 30, 40 year career. But the fact is, is I think particularly for black women, um, when you're being employed by others, it may be more of a 20 or a 30 year career. And so in your 30s and the 40s, what would you be doing if you knew that you weren't going to be um, hired or that you were going to get laid off when you were 50? Would that give you a different incentive in terms of how you spend your money or how you save or any businesses that you might want to start or other things that you might want to do? And a lot, a lot of my friends are reinventing themselves over the age of 50. And it is happening to too many of my friends for me to think that this is just random. And we're talking people who worked for companies for 20 and 30 years, and then all of a sudden they were laid off. Mm. Um and so I, I, I wish that I could have gone back to my 30-year-old self and said, like, you know, the, the kind of rules for the, for the white guys that you will now have a 40-year career don't necessarily apply to you. Mm -hmm. And so you need, to, you need to think differently. So as I mentioned, I, I did homeless health, which was an amazing um, thing for me to do in my career. But I was actually working in a lot of nonprofit organizations. And I think I would have been more deliberate about investing earlier in my retirement. Um, and again, leveraging my youth to just even small amounts of money, but over time makes a big, big difference. And to not put off some of these hard financial decisions um, to later, just kind of assuming that the money would always come or that I would always have a career. But to recognize that, um, you know, early in your career, if you, you know, go and work someplace and, and invest in your pension or invest in, in a retirement fund when you're 25, 30 years old, and then you can actually walk away and go work in the nonprofit world and save the world. Those problems, one, don't go away. And so it, those problems will always be there for you to work on. And two, you can be sitting with that um, investment in your back pocket, um, accruing value and growing as then you grow in your career. So that would have been a change that I would have done is, is honestly, I would have made some real money earlier in my career. I would have invested it and then I would have done the nonprofit work that I ended up doing. Excellent. That's wonderful advice. Thank you. Yes, yes. Well, Anne, you've been awesome. 
We thank just want to thank you so much for sharing such great, 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 you know, just a, advice and pointers with, with, with our listeners. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed listening to you all. So thank you for having me join you. <laughs> okay. And you have a good one and thank you. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions, email us at dametalk4 at gmail.com. That's dametalk and the number four at gmail. To learn more about us and these topics, check out our website at dametalkpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. This is Dame Talk. We don't know everything, but we know enough.